Welcome to a new episode of Latinos Who Tech. My name is Hugo Castellanos. In this podcast, we talk with Latinos working in the tech industry and share tools on how to take your career to the next level. If you're listening to the audio version, you can give us five stars on Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Feedback is always welcome, so you can write to us at hello at latinoswhotech.com. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. I hope that you're feeling a bit better with your back. Yeah, it's getting better every day. So we're, we got it under control. So tell me your story. How do you get to where you are? Sure. So it's a long roundabout way. So we're going to go through a couple, I think, important moments in my life that kind of got me to cybersecurity and to La Reina del Cyber. So as a kid, Latina, parents both born in Mexico, born in Mexico, They were very strict, to say the least. I used to turn in my phone every night at eight o'clock, and that was all the way until I was 18 years old. So I always, as a kid, tried to find ways, that sounds terrible, but tried to find ways to stay online or stay communicating, find ways around what my parents were controlling. I wasn't allowed to have a MySpace. I got a MySpace, got caught, got my phone taken away for six months. Long story short, very strict parents. But I tell them now that they're probably the reason that I'm in cybersecurity because what I would do is I remember like I had a PSP and I found a way to send text messages from the PSP at night and they would turn off the router and I would find a way to connect the like neighbor's wireless and do things like that and really started learning how computers work. Um, We were fortunate enough that we had a computer at home and I lived close enough to school where we would walk home after school and I would just sit there on AOL and start playing or researching things. So that turned into when I was in high school, me thinking, so I, for a long time, wanted to do like a major in like chemistry or something like that when I got to college. And that was because I didn't really know about engineering. So I was actually really loved math and sciences, but I was also really good at art. By my senior year of high school, I was deciding between going to art school and then going to, to different schools for either chemical engineering or for chemistry. I didn't really think of engineering as a career until I had, I took AP physics and in AP physics, my teacher was a female and she was super supportive and I joined the robotics club and she was like, Hey, have you considered this kind of thing? I had a couple of good teachers in high school that were like, Hey, you should really consider engineering. So it's one of those things where it sounds stupid to say now because it's so obvious as a career path. But as a kid, I didn't know what engineering was. I just didn't think of a doctor, lawyer, whatever, but these big shiny careers that everyone aspires to without really understanding what engineering was. So- you don't know what you don't know, right? That's exactly. why it's important to have mentors and folks around you that you can ask questions. And I'll add, I think on the topic of mentors, just real quick, um, I've never really had a formal mentor relationship because what I've found is that almost like, for me, it makes it less productive. I try to put myself in the same room as people that I want to learn from. So inadvertently, they become like mentors and I build relationships with them. But I think I've just always shied away from the awkwardness of, hey, can you be my mentor? I don't look down at it at all. It's just that was never my style because I always I try to bring my full self to work. And so those relationships to me, for me, for my own to be a receiving mentee. I feel like they need to come from an organic, genuine place. So I decide that based on getting to know a person. And it's almost like you don't even have to say like a mentorship. But at the same time, I mentor women that reach out to me all the time. And I don't look down at it at all. It's just one of those things where I never formally sat down and was like, hey, will you be my mentor? But I can absolutely tell you I have mentors, right. whether they realize it or not. 
Yeah. No, and of course, and I find that it's a, it is a two-way street in the sense that I have a mentor. And again, he's not formal in the sense that, oh, mentor, let's meet every Friday. For, no, right. we, we chat every six months or so. We grab lunch together, what have you. And he's a director of sales at a tech company. And he's from Minnesota. So he's like peanut butter and jelly sandwich, American, <laughs> like, yeah. And he mentors me on executive presence. Yep. So things like, okay, how do you speak up in meetings? How do you take control of the room? And I mentor him on social media. Yep. So when he has those questions, like, hey, Hugo, what are kids using nowadays? Kind of thing. Yep. Wait, what do you mean? Why do you look for this in YouTube instead of TikTok or what have you? Or And it's a two-way street, right? But it's the fact that we are just a text message away and exactly. we can count on each other. But again, it doesn't have to be formal. Yeah, it, and I think you... We hit, all have our style. I think you hit on something like it's just a text message away, right? Meaning you've gotten to a certain level of comfort with this person that you've built mutual respect. You've built a relationship outside of just I need you, you need me. And it starts to be genuine and just be like, hey, by the way, I thought of you, for this might be good. And that comes along with connecting yourself, like I said, with people that you admire, or people you want to learn from. Cross, like that cross mentorship where you're working with the director of sales, that is one of the best things I feel like I've ever tried to do in my career is start to learn from the sales team. How are you maybe just passively watching the person asking questions? How are you getting this first meeting? Like, how do you get a meeting with somebody on the, in the C-suite when you have to sell this product? How are you building those relationships? How do you establish, ask, establish that rapport? So that it doesn't feel weird to text a client or a customer to build those relationships. I agree. I think you hit the nail on the head right there. Yeah. Thank you for that. Uh, so tell me a little bit about your personal brand. How do you arrive to this? So, <laughs> yes. Okay. So back to the high school story. So I had the mentors <clears throat> and it's going to get us to the cyber. So by the time I got to college, I ended up. Uh, I think orientation, it was before classes started. I switched my major from chemical engineering at USC. I went to USC in SoCal. I switched my major on the paper from chemical engineering to computer science with an emphasis in video games design. My thought at the time was like, this is going to be a, a cool fusion of the two, like engineering art. And I had a mentor who, again, she was actually a formal mentor because I was an intern at Northrop Grumman. And so she was the, the mentor that was assigned to me and she like was great. And she was like, hey, my alma mater, USC, had this program. You should look into it because I used to go to my internship for engineering. And this sounds terrible, especially on a Latino tech podcast. But I would go, I would finish my work and I would just be drawing the whole time. So I would like still try to find a way for both worlds. And so I ended up doing CS games, spent one semester with the games emphasis and hated it, but realized I really loved the computer science side of it. So that turned into a computer science major. I dropped the game's emphasis and picked up a minor in fine art and just decided if these two can be separate, I don't have to force them together. And it was my senior year where I, I was on scholarship. I was on academic scholarship. So I always tried to stack up my as many units as I could and would take classes, whether it was auditing or just try to stack up. And some of the classes that I took, for example, were like tennis. I took makeup for motion pictures. But then I learned that there was a class at USC. This is when InfoSec was first coming up and cybersecurity was first starting. This is before a lot of the major breaches. So I think right when Target was happening and it was before like Sony, it was before a lot of these major breaches. But I learned there was a class that you could learn to pick a lock. And I like, I've always had this thing in my head where I wanted to be like super cool, but I never thought it was super cool. I think we all have our dorky, nerdy side. Um, wow, that sounds so cool. You're a girl who can know how to pick locks. And so I really wanted to learn to pick locks. 
And that was the hacking class. So the class was from hackers to CEOs. This was my senior year that I stumbled upon this cybersecurity track. And at this point, I had already been interning. I'd interned with Northrop Grumman for two years. I had also gotten an offer from Verizon to do software engineering. And it was actually, I got that offer through HENAC. If you, have you heard of HENAC? Of course. Yeah, okay. HENAC, great minds in STEM now. Yep, yep. So I was- yeah, I um, love that conference. I love that conference. Yeah, so. I give a scholarship every year for mine. I change the name every year because I didn't have a clear brand until La Reina del Cyber. But I have the Latina STEAM team scholarship. And so there's been five recipients so far that I do a scholarship for every year through PNAC. So. How is that structured? Do you administer the requirements of who gets it? Do, do you give the money to the organization? What I've, I had done this, my thing was as soon as I got the scholarship, this is part of my mission is to always pay it forward. And so I got a good job and I was like, I can afford to do a scholarship. So what you do basically is you reach out and I can give you the contact is Gary Cruz. He's the director. And Gary sends you a paper where it's a scholarship commitment form. And you basically fill out your details. You say how much, how many scholarships, what's the amount. They do charge you like a small processing fee to do certain things. I think it's like 10 or 15% of whatever your scholarship is worth. And then you can check criteria that you want to match. So if you need them to be first gen, or if you need them to be specifically Latino, or if you need them to be, if a master's degree is allowed or just undergrad, and you can filter by gender as well. And then you can have them elect the person for you. They have to send their resume. They have to send a letter of, or two letters of recommendation, and they have to do an essay. And I always look for applicants that are already showing that they're paying it forward and they're using their, their power or their privilege or whatever they've created for themselves to pay that forward because it's not for me it's not enough for us to be latinos in tech it's like hey but turn around and carry somebody with you and uh, like every applicant i remember being moved by their essays and some of them have brought me to tears i'll tell you in full honesty for that i love all those programs where you can give back to folks especially because this platform has uh, become that yeah, in the exactly. sense that, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm talking to engineers from Facebook, from Google, from what have you. And yeah. I guess I'm sure this happens to you, that you get invited to panels and to do workshops. And it's great. The 30, 40, 50 people that are in the workshop, they get inspired. And yes, let's do this. But what about the 200 that didn't know, had a conflict, yep. go to a webinar? Why? And again, yeah. so... I figure why not make a podcast that people can download anytime. Yep. I run campaigns every quarter. So people find me in Spotify and Google and yeah. YouTube and everything. So, yeah, no, definitely look at the scholarship info. Thank you for yeah. that. I want to see more folks like us uh, yeah. working in tech. And especially when you learn that people have this vision that, oh, I need to be an engineer to work at Google or Facebook yeah. or Intel or what have you. And no, we need people that work in customer success, product marketing, cybersecurity, what have you. There's all kinds of careers, yeah. uh, especially now that we're all working remote, right? Uh, or jobs are some of the safest jobs out there. So, Yeah, it's weird to think about because people were worried about their jobs being threatened. And we had been working from home before COVID. So I was not a risk that I ever like felt like our company had. And that's a luxury. Of course. Of course. So tell me about how do you get your first cyber job in, in the industry that uh, you started to say that, okay, I'm in cybersecurity now. This is my thing. Yeah. So that lockpicking class for Packers CEOs, I ended up meeting the professor there who had helped develop the original information technology program at USC. 
And he immediately was like, okay, so you're really good at this. Let's go ahead. Don't accept your software engineering offers. I'm going to put you in contact with somebody at EY. Now, what's interesting is I had gone to, and especially I think you definitely have an audience of students who are in college, right? I had gone yeah. to the recruiting event and I'm telling you, like, I'm very much a feeling person. So I went to some of these events and I was like, this is not for me. Okay. Mm -hmm. I say this now because I worked at EY. I went to the EY event and I was like, this is not for me. I went and they were recruiting for cybersecurity. I attended and I listened and then I just left. I, it was just not, it didn't feel like the right fit. So the application process passed. And then this guy, this professor at my university, his name is Joe Greenfield. So he put me in contact with the director of the cyber program in Los Angeles at EY. He's got a personal relationship and he was one of those instructors who really invested in his students. And he always said his whole goal is to get us hired. And he did a really good job of that. Patrick works at EY. And he's now, I think like a, I want to say he's a partner or he's a principal, which is like the highest, one of the highest ranks that you can be at one of the big four. Mm -hmm. uh, he and I hit it off on the phone and he ended up saying, okay, let's get you a tech panel. I had a technical interview. And again, it was one of those things where it's so funny because I had such a great career at EY. I left the interview, the technical interview. Now, mind you, I started cybersecurity in September of, what was that? My senior year. 2013, right? I graduated. Mm -hmm. I started cybersecurity September. I was interviewing for cybersecurity position in November. And so a lot of my interviews, you talk about imposter syndrome, like that was real because I was like, bro, I've been in this field for three months. I don't know how they think, but I was very candid in the interview. And I told him, look, I'm new to cybersecurity. I have a background in software engineering, so I can tell you what I understand from this side. But I was very transparent and explained to them. And I, this is like just a tidbit of advice for anyone who's getting ready for a technical interview. Don't be afraid to say, I don't know, but don't leave it there. You say, I don't know, but this is based on what I know about these other things. This is how I'm going to solve this. You could miss the mark. But what you're showing that interviewer is this is how this person thinks. This is what they do know. And if you hit on something, let's say they ask me how the internet works. And I'm like, God, I would never say this, but I don't know how the internet works. I know that when I log into my computer, I got to type XYZ in the browser. And I always notice this thing here, something with DNS, right? And then I tell them, oh, like that's the keyword. So they're going to be like, oh, so you know about DNS. And we can start digging deep in it. Oh yeah, I actually love DNS. I've right. done all the things, right? So get talking. Don't stay silent. Even if you don't know, it's okay to say, you know what? This is not an area that, I'm, and I've seen this done also in interviews because I interview people in my role now for technical mm -hmm. role. The ones that do well are the ones that are, hey, I'm not 100% sure on this, but this is how I think it would solve. Like, don't be afraid to tar target the problem. Don't be afraid to be wrong, but also be humble and don't just make things up if you actually don't know what you're talking about. Because a lot of times the person interviewing you obviously knows the answer. If that's Basically, I started off in the digital forensics incident response side of the house. And so that team was supposedly going to be doing investigations. Now, when I was there, we were still building out the practice, which means we were doing a lot of more security consulting, like creating policies, interviewing with key stakeholders. It was a lot more almost auditory risk compliance side of the house. And I lasted about nine months before I told them, like, I'm out. I got an offer. I actually ended up getting an offer for the security team for Facebook. And I was like, hey, I'm out. I appreciate your time. I want it to be more technical. Mm -hmm. I ended up telling my boss that, and it was this Patrick who I had a personal relationship with. And he was like, hold on. He was like, not even speaking as your boss, just professionally, let's talk about what's going on. And I told him, hey, I really want to be more technical. So he was like, what does that mean to you? And I said, I want to be on the hacking team. So I got added to our pen testing team, our red team. Those are all synonyms for the same thing. It's ethical hackers. So 
basically we, we get hired to hack companies in a number of different ways. And then we do not do anything with those vulnerabilities. We give them a report and we say, fix this. The other cool thing is when you are on the red team, you don't have to worry about fixing it. So you get to go in and break everything. Don't break nice. anything actually. Cause you, if you cause like an outage, that's a really bad thing. But you get to go hack everything and then be like, here's the report of what I did. Go fix it. And then you come back the next year and see if they actually did. A lot of times they don't, unfortunately. I think like that freedom of actually being able to break into the system and break stuff without having to clean it up reminds me a lot of uh, like going to my tío's house and cooking. Uh, (laughs) The fact that I feel way more creative just because he has a bigger kitchen and he has nicer knives and things like that hey but at the end of the night hey ciao tío see you next sunday that's so funny see so that's so like, they retained you that way they made you more technical at the y yeah and so i accepted awesome. that I didn't, it, for me like it wasn't a money thing so i didn't ask i didn't negotiate a pay bump or anything i really just wanted to be technical and so i did that and uh, for consulting you're on the road a lot so that's ultimately what led to me leaving is i was just burning out because in between that i had been in la for all of this and then i decided to move to atlanta because i just wanted to switch things up i was right. living at my parents house for the first couple years while i was working and was traveling a lot but i was like hey i want to move out but i don't want to pay la rent right. so if i move i'm gonna actually move so i ended up coming to atlanta and nice. uh, that lasted about two years here before i really started to burn out we were doing a lot of travel so I started looking elsewhere and I ended up at Tanium. And so now at Tanium, Tanium is a software company. We're a vendor. And I'm now one of the subject matter experts for our threat response product, which is cybersecurity, our like EDR version of the solution. And then I specifically yes. actually just moved to a team to focus on Latin America. So I help awesome. me and one other guy on the technical side of the house. And then we've got an RVP of sales for the region for LATAM. And a couple other people that help out, but we're starting to build out Tanium in in Mexico. We have opportunities in Costa Rica and Brazil. So you're going to catch me out in all these countries. Nice. Getting those passport stamps. Exactly. Uh, that's awesome. That's awesome. So what's it like, like cybersecurity in Latin America? There's some work to be made. And even then, with the U.S. being further ahead, we're still not secure in the US. I'm telling you, like having worked on the red team, there's not one engagement where I didn't get domain admin, which is the password for access to everything. There's not one project where I didn't get that in a number of weeks. There was one that I remember distinctly where it took us a couple tries because this is one of the only customers that took our reports and actually fixed what we told them to do. And we got it, I think it was like the second week, like the last day, they forgot one server. They forgot to change the default password. And that server was basically the process was running as a system account, which is the most privileged account on the machine. And so right, we were right. able to run attacks from that. But other than that, like security is hard. If you think of it, it's whack-a-mole, right? You're sitting trying to cover all the holes and you have people hitting you from every which way. Yeah. And, think, and I think that uh, that's why it draws people like you, people that enjoy the problem-solving side, the critical thinking side, but also the fast-paced side. That I I find there there's not a there's not a boring moment. No, uh, and it's the, like when you're doing consulting projects last for like red team consulting anywhere from three weeks to five weeks, right? You're it's pretty short, so you get the luxury of seeing an environment new for the first time ever, and it's called black box testing, where they don't give you any information; they just tell you prove that you get access to the CEO's email, prove that you can wire funds, prove that you can control the machines on the factory floor, right? They don't give you any info. 
but you get the luxury of doing that on each of your projects. So you start from nothing and you get to figure out. And then there's this like psychology side of it because then you start to figure out like how companies organize their different groups and you try to figure mm-hmm. out what accounts, like which users are going to have access to what you need access to. What are they, what browser are they going to be using? Like you start to think about all these things. And if you get more advanced, you can start creating targeted phishing campaigns where I hack Google's email and I send Stephanie an email from Google so that he clicks on this thing. You know what I'm saying? So there's the tech side of it, but there's a psychology side of it, which makes you right. feel like this evil villain, but you're actually allowed to do it. I'm sure you'll get this a lot, but do you ever watch Mr. Robot? Okay, how annoyed are you? Or what do you feel like uh, when you watch those things? You know what? That one was actually pretty accurate. And coincidentally, mm. two of the guys, I only watched season one because after that, I felt like it got dark. It was like, just got a little dark. But two of the guys that were the technical consultants for that film actually work at Tanium. And Tanium is on the screens in the, I think it's season one. So it's really funny because I was like, oh, look at how that worked out. They don't work at Tanium anymore. But from what I saw, the exploits were pretty accurate. Like they were real exploits. It wasn't just like the, your CSIs say stuff where I'm watching. I'm like, I can't even watch this. And I think I started watching CSI Cyber. Like when it first came out, I watched one or two episodes. But it was one of those things, again, where they were jumping out like hella conclusions. And I was like, this is not right. how it works. One of yeah. our students at school, too, they put an episode of like some cyber like show. And they said, prove everything that's wrong with his acquisition. accurate. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And it's, I mean, I feel like every profession has their movies like that. But let me ask you, what are some of the, and again, nothing confidential, nothing like that. I'm wondering just from a career perspective, somebody that's curious on cybersecurity, what is the, the day-to-day technical account manager? Like what are some of the challenges? Yep. So can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, folks that are already in the vendor space might have some idea of technical account management for Tanium. Again, this is my first time in the vendor space, so I only know how we do it. And what I've heard is it's a little different at Tanium. So um, basically, what we're both pre-sales and post-sales, okay? Now, other companies typically split these out. When I say pre-sale, that means I go present to a, a CISO, a CIO, and or like a VP of ops or something. I go present to leadership and I show them this is what Tadium is. This is how it helps your business. So you have to speak at the business level and really talk about business risk and you focus your conversation to business. Now, we're post sales as well, which means everything that I'm telling them that we can do, I implement. So that means if they decide to purchase Tadium, I'm going to be their, their technical account manager. So we do what that looks like. It's typically like calls with, depending on the customer, once a week, twice a week, three times a week. I'm one of my customers was one of the customer, or the large company here in Atlanta. And we met, we had a couple cadence calls that were scheduled two times a week. And then other than that, it was ad hoc, but it was, we were meeting four or five times a week. And so what that looks like is actual implementation. So they might tell me, Hey, I want to use Tanium to patch everything over here. Right. And I'll be like, okay, so we need to set this up, make sure we run tests and get this upgrades out and patch. Right. They could also come to me and be like, Hey, I'm seeing an issue. Like I see CPU spiking on this machine. And then we go ahead and we troubleshoot. So the really fun part of working at Tanium is that as a software, we're agent-based, but we do ops and security. So my heavy security background takes me so far because we do asset discovery, asset inventory, risk, compliance, file integrity monitoring, patching, application upgrades. So all this stuff that I didn't know about that I now have to learn about to speak to the business but also to implement and tell them what's industry best practices. 
So it's been like this really fun thing. So my day to day is if I'm not on calls right now, because I told you we're building out Latin America, a lot mm-hmm. of my calls are with prospects. Hey, we have these use case or they'll tell us we have these. Tenemos esos casos de uso, cómo se hace esta cosa con Tanium. Quiero ver, you know, esta funcionalidad mm-hmm. de Tanium, whatever. And so we do all of that. And the fun part, like I said, it's all in Spanish. So tech in Spanish is a whole different ballgame. I have flashbacks. Yeah, yeah. I, I have like, a couple of stories about that. But, uh, but yeah, no tech, especially because translating content, that's tough. That's you know, tough. I remember when I first started, I was like looking and some websites will say firewall. Some websites will say pared de fuegos. And they'll say, oh, my God. And so I'll catch myself like, that don't sound right. I'm pretty sure we have a firewall. Like when we're, t- but so there's things like that where it's not intuitive, uh, or there's just a lot. But I have my little flashcards, and it, we're learning real quick. Yeah, and, so- and I find that when you are having those engagements with customers in Latin America or anywhere else, I find that telling them a story will engage them. Okay, and then showing the terminology, uh, even if it's in English, like will resonate. Oh, I, I had this experience that I was presenting to some directors of these, uh, I can't say their name, but they're an OEM in Mexico. Okay. They make uh, PCs. Okay. And Hugo, and I asked them, Hugo, do you want me to do the presentation in Spanish, in English, what have you? And they told me, Hugo, you can do it in English. Yep. We are gonna, we're going to understand it and it will actually be better from us because all the technical stuff is in English anyway. Yeah. So at the end of the day, it was easier for me. Yeah, and I've learned most of the time, like our the audience, like, at least we work a lot with Mexico right now. They all speak mm-hmm. or they at least understand English. So a lot of yeah. the conversations can be in English and they'll fully keep, keep up with exactly what we're saying. It's like a decision to keep those calls in Spanish. Some of the more technical admins, like execs are always able to speak and understand English, but some of your more admins prefer Spanish and then we cater to that. But we try to do our business in Spanish to really get in with the region and like, that in itself, communicating in the same language, is a way to build rapport and it's a way to establish trust with your customers. So, we yeah, finish what we can. Definitely, it happened to me that I was traveling with my team to Panama, and we had a giant technology conference there with mm-hmm. uh, 450 customers. And when I say customers, I mean like companies. Uh, so yeah. probably like 3,000 people from different like director level, C level. Yep. And I remember that my boss at the time, he threw me into the ocean in the sense that, uh, hey, Hugo, do you want to do a presentation for C-level folks someday? Or, yeah, I would love to. Okay, t- today's the day. <laughs> there you go. So <laughs> I'm going to do the 9 a.m. You take over at 9.30. Okay, that's awesome. Thanks, boss. So I did it in Spanish. And I didn't, um, and again, really good feedback. They loved it. And at the end of the day, one of the these C-level folks approached me and told me, hey, Hugo, so what these folks are saying here that estos gringos me están mintiendo, me están diciendo la verdad. Just because the fact that I said it in Spanish, even though we're in the same company, like he, he believed my, my opinion more. He, my yeah. opinion had more weight because uh, I'm one of, uh, we were in the same exactly. team. Very well. And you hear, we've had meetings where I'll bring on like a subject matter expert to talk about something, but they don't speak Spanish. And when we translate, all of a sudden the engagement goes up incredibly. And it, it makes sense, right? Like uh, you have people in the audience that maybe don't know how to say the words that they need in English and or maybe are catching some of the words in, in English and not able to fully get what the picture is. So when we translate just language like that's, yeah, it's 
I think it's super important just to communicate with people in the same language, especially when you're doing business with them. If you were either on the vendor side, I think as a as a consumer, you have less of a responsibility. But as a vendor, like our job at Tanium, I firmly believe we want to see our customers succeed. So if that language helps them succeed, like that's what we're going to do. Yeah. No, and especially for folks that are looking for their next career, their next job. Uh, yeah. If you have language skills, you need to market them. Um, yeah. Especially and- in a remote world that. Hey, I can do customer success for Spain from anywhere. Exactly. 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 That's awesome. That's awesome. I'm sure that you get this question a lot. And you have a really nice video that we'll put in the show notes so folks can get that question answered of how do I break into cybersecurity? How do I find my job? Cybersecurity. Yeah. But I'm so how do you go about it? If you're curious, you're technical, but you're in defense, how would you go about it? Yeah. So there's a lot that you can do. My path to entry, like I said, started with just trying to get around my parents' rules and it turned into wanting to pick a lock. And I sound like an evil villain. Funny enough, when I was in middle school, I played the villain in the play every year. Like I was even cast as Jafar in Aladdin, like a male. I loved playing the villain, which translates into my career. But basically, I think the first step is to, I always tell people, start from the life you want, because that's going to ultimately cater to what's going to make you happy in a career. Back when I was telling you guys the EY thing, I left that technical interview and I was going to turn down the offer. I think I was scared of the travel. I was like, I don't want to do consulting. Like, and so I'm going to be gone all the time. And I remember randomly, like a doctor that I went to see during my senior year was like, what's the risk? What's the worst thing that happens? If you hate the job, you quit, you think you're not going to, you think you're not going to find anything. And she made me realize that just to take that leap. So with cyber, it's one of those things like, what's the risk for you trying to figure out if you like it or not, right? But start from what kind of life you want. So does that include like you working from home? Does that include you want to travel a lot? Does it include international travel? Cyber is such a really like broad domain, right? So there's Mm -hmm. security consulting, which is very different from red teaming, which is very different from working on the vendor side which is very different from working internally like a sysadmin or a network engineer or an internal SOC, or you can also do consulting for like digital forensics. So you help respond to these incidents. So there's such a spectrum and you start from, okay, how do, what do I envision for my life? I believe we're people first and I love my career. And obviously like my, I'm my career and I, I try to think like we're pretty much one and the same, but my career has to suit my desire for my life. Of course. Start with that. And then you start looking into different roles that are available. So I had posted on my blog post, like a link to a website that had some that's not comprehensive. What I recommend is reaching out to people to have a conversation. If their title says cybersecurity, hit them up on LinkedIn. What I found is people in cyber love meeting other people in cyber. And then you tell them you're Latino and they're Latino and they're going to put you on like nothing. Everyone, everybody eat, right? That's what I always say. Everyone, there's room for everyone at the table. So if somebody hits me up and they're like, hey, I'm having these questions about cyber, I do my best to answer them and I get them on Slack and they message me. And I've met with the last few weekends, I've met with different people that have just found me on social media or on LinkedIn. And we just have a conversation about what they want. And then I tell them, hey, start looking into these different career options. Like, so what you're saying, this sounds like you might really enjoy some type of scripting automation. Maybe you want to be on the sysadmins integration side of the house or there's so much you can do. So Vision your life, start to figure out like what those careers are, and then start immersing yourself in the cybersecurity space. So that means following certain people on social media, like whether Twitter is a big base for this. Any big players there that people should follow? 
or oh. that you follow that you think that? So I follow a ton of people, but I never use Twitter, but I know that it's well used. So I'm saying Twitter mm. because that's there. There's a lot of space there. What, how I get my information, I'm like a heavy on Instagram and I have built out La Reina and Cyber there on you or on Twitter. I'll click and I go in like maybe once a month and read articles. But the main way to really immerse yourself, I'd say, is Steedly. And a lot of people that are active on Twitter also have blogs. And so the RSS feed come in through there. But the gotcha. Twitter is because you also get to see what their life is. And that is going to help further inform, like, how do I want my life to be? Okay, this person. Now, mind you, this is one of the issues with representation, right? Is as Latino, you're not necessarily going to find a lot of Latinos where you're going to be like, oh, that's the life that I want. But you get to change that. So congratulations. We're exciting. We're going to change that. Twitter, like I said, there's a lot of people that I would recommend. I can share a list with you after just because. I can't sure. do that one right now, but Krebs on security is a big one. There's a lot of just like blog sites that share. Dark reading is interesting just in a cybersecurity perspective, but a lot of different like people also create their own tools. So if you follow their RSS feeds, you get updates about different tools that they're using. So you can learn, even if you don't ever play with their tool, you can learn like, oh, okay, they created a tool to exploit XYZ. What is XYZ? Let me learn about it. I also recommend, I actually have it here because like I said, I just spoke to the interns today. But I recommend creating, so I have my first notebook that I had back when I was at EY. And this notebook is like when I first started, because I started from the uh, incident response team. And remember, I went into mm -hmm. hacking. I learned a lot of it on the job. So I have all of my super OCD colored notes. I really Beautiful. Notes. And what I did is I remember I would be in a meet or like in a, like an on an assessment and I would make a note of little terms or like protocols that I hadn't heard of or like just words that I didn't know. And then I would go and start with just getting a Wikipedia level understanding. That's literally all you need because I think it's overwhelming when, especially in cybersecurity, there's, I'm still learning. There's so much I don't know. And so when you're trying to jump in, it feels like you're like, I'm going to go, like, I don't even wow. know. Start. So just start with a Wikipedia level understanding and then pieces will start to connect. Like I promise you. And part of that means just reading articles that interest you. Like, God forbid, another big company gets breached. Start reading mm -hmm. the technical articles, how it happened. It's not going to all make sense, but that's where you say, okay, you highlight this and you go look that up. And once you start to feel comfortable with that, the next step is, and if you're technical, maybe you start with this step, create a lab. You're not going to learn if you don't, if you're not hands-on. So the same way, like if you're a hardware engineer, you're probably in there building, you're playing with different things you need to have a virtual lab. So that turns into investing at least in a computer that can run at least two virtual machines, but you really, in an ideal space, have something that can run more. There are really affordable Dell Optiplex servers that you can get that have like specs that are a little more hefty that will support more VMs. And then you can start setting things up. And VM, virtual machine, if you guys don't know, that'll help you start to set up an, an environment that looks like a corporate domain, and then you can start running attacks. But before you get to a lab, there's also a lot of like online, like there's a hack the box where you can create an account and you use your own computer to hack into boxes that they pre-staged. Um, so you can start on somebody else's like infrastructure and then create your own lab when you're ready. Definitely, awesome. like I said, figure out what life you want, figure out what it is that you want to do. Once you figure that out, then start immersing yourself in the tech and cyberspace specifically, and then start playing with things. Like you have to learn by creating scripts or setting up a domain or creating accounts, whatever it is. That's the easiest way or hardest and easiest at the same time. Of course. And that's an idea for a YouTube video for you that setting up your first lab. 
Yeah. Uh, especially because there's a lot of choices and you don't need a whole lot. You don't need a whole lot. You didn't need a dedicated PC. Like I have, a, I have two NAS drives right here next to me. And okay. again, I have, I'm on my Mac now, but I have my PC right here next to me. So we have so much hardware laying around that you can figure something out. You can figure something yeah. out. How many old iPhones or Android phones do you have laying around the house? Put those to some good use. Can I a lot of them play I with the OS? I was going to say, I think on Android, you can install Kali Linux now. And so like you can set up, yeah, there's a ton you can do. And so I think you just have to have the curiosity to do it, right? The, oh, I wonder if this works here. And then I'm sure somebody's written an article. And if they haven't, congrats, you get to write that article and you're the expert in that thing. Oh, yeah. And I find that it's helpful also to think of that idea of shipping stuff. Like Facebook, they're obsessed with this idea of ship fast, move fast, break things. But the idea that you go from a divergent phase where you're researching, like, for example, I want to make this podcast episode with you. Yep. So I went through a divergent phase where I'm like, okay, so let me research Stephanie, her website, her YouTube channel, her LinkedIn page, put together some notes and done. Yep. Now I work to the convergent stage where, okay, let's record the podcast, let's edit, let's take out the nuggets and ship and we're done. Like, I don't need to like write a biography on you. I need to come up with this package of 35 minutes of, okay, who's Stephanie and why she's amazing and why you should go right now to La Primel Cyber and check it out. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I think like you talked about it too, I think before we were recording, but this, I think we all struggle from, we have this idea and it's like, how do I get this implemented? And I had this idea of starting to really put my own content, my own thought leadership online. And it's one of those things where you're like, okay, I know, like I said, I work with experts in the field, right? So I'm like, they should be doing it. No. And I always had an excuse to convince myself not to do it. And you start to realize, I like you have a voice, you have an audience, you have a unique mm -hmm. story that people are going to tap into, whether it's just who you are, whether it's because they enjoy seeing somebody that they identify with, they relate to. And so that's where La Reina del Cyber came out. And then we had to evoke Teresa Mendoza, Icon, because I, so I binge watched both, both in awesome. quarantine and I was all here for, I was really sad when it ended, but season two was incredible. You need to know that I don't watch. Stephanie, you've been amazing. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us. In the show notes, you can go follow her on Instagram and all her social media. And I'm wondering, is there anything else that you'd like to share with this audience of Latinos, Latinas that work in tech or want to work in tech someday? Yeah, I'd say focus just in your life on building the mentality that gives you hope because I firmly believe like in faith and in everything that I've been able to accomplish, you can do anything you want. And sometimes it's hard and sometimes you don't feel like there's a way, but my advice has always been like, if somebody tells me no, I respect their opinion, but I'm going to find another way to do it. And you need a little bit of that audacity, especially in a field like in technology where it's, there's a lot to learn, right? You might get a lot of no's, you might run into a few hiccups, the bumps in the road, but you got to find out in your head what's driving you and really start to believe I belong here and things fall into place. I promise they you have to have that faith in God and you have to have your own like self faith in yourself to know things are going to work out because you're capable and you deserve to be here and you belong here. And that being said, that needs to give you, that'll give you the motivation to push through and be smart when you're networking or when you're looking into new jobs, talk to people blindly submitting your resume. I'm telling you, no, I, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. No, I've applied for positions where my resume never got looked at and I'm now advising the companies. So 
don't waste that time. Just make connections. And again, that goes through making genuine, legitimate connections with people, authentic connections. So yeah, be yourself, make those connections and have safe. Like it, I promise it. Will yeah. Happen. Yeah. No, that's amazing. Stephanie, thank you so much. Pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.